Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. Over the last four episodes, episodes four through seven, we've talked about each of the double homicides that are commonly referred to as the Colonial Parkway murders. In this episode, we're going to evaluate what all four cases have in common, where they differ, and introduce some characters that come up in connection with the series of murders. Although we want to make this episode stand on its own, you might want to listen to the previous episodes to get the background on each of these cases individually. So what do you have for similarities? I have 13 because well, why not 13 in a case like this? It because just makes I sense. hate the number 13. You know so, by now that my ex-wife was born on Friday the 13th, and that was a lucky number for her and not for me. Sometimes the writing's on the wall and you just got to read it, Bob. 13 similarities. The first one, I don't think you can argue with me too much. These were all double homicides. Each case involved two people who got murdered at the same time. I, yeah, I agree. That's absolutely. Next, I've got they were all Caucasian victims. Oh, yes, you're right. Number three, they all occurred at night. All of these crimes were at nighttime. I think we're safe to assume that's true. Yeah, I think with the timelines, David and Robin, I think that's pretty clear. Keith and Cassandra, that one's pretty nailed down because of the time they left the party. And then you've got people seeing the car, the time they see it in the morning, it never moves and they're never found. I guess we technically don't know. But the crime in terms of, it, if nothing else, the kidnapping occurred at night. We can say that all of these people, they were last seen at night. And the only hesitation I have is that some of the investigations here were a little wonky. But sure, these yeah. people were all last seen at night. And we presume, based on the evidence we're aware of, that they were okay. also killed that same night that they went missing. Yeah, that's. I agree with you. I mean, that's one of those I can't, but I think it's safe to say. It's not that I mean to be nitpicky. I just try to be very careful not to assume. No, that's fair. And frankly, that raises a good point. You know, in researching this, one of the things that makes this challenging, there are a lot of things that are out there that are not necessarily verifiable. Just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's true. We don't have case files. We don't have autopsies. We don't have police reports because this is still an open and ongoing investigation. We don't have a lot of that stuff. Yeah, it's very easy for a case like this to turn into a game of telephone when you have right. somebody looking back at something that a newspaper reported that an investigator suspected, and then someone else writes a book that someone mm -hmm. else talks about, and not that any one of those people was trying to be deceptive, but it can lead you in the wrong direction. And that's all I'm trying to be cautious of. Yeah, agreed. Number four, I have age range. If we look at all eight victims, the age range is 14 to 27. However, six out of eight of those victims were 18 to 21 years old. And I also want to think about the fact that Robin, who's the youngest, she was 14. But everybody seems to agree, particularly her family members, that she looked more mature, acted a little more mature. And then Kathy, who was the oldest, she's the, the outlier on that side of the spectrum. She was 27. But I think looking at pictures of her at the time, she had a youthful vibrance to her. So I could see where she could look a bit younger than 27. Six out of eight. 18 to 21 years old, and the two outliers, I think the youngest one who was 14 looked a good bit older, and Kathy being the oldest at 27 looked a good bit younger. So really, in my mind, that's a pretty narrow age range. I agree on all of those points. 
Number five, there was an effort made to conceal the bodies in all of these cases. Kathy and Becky, we've got diesel fuel that doesn't ignite. We've got the car trying to be pushed into the river. In the second case with David and Robin, they're in the river. And if they wouldn't have got caught in some of the bramble root situation, there's a good chance that their bodies would have never been discovered. Keith and Sandy, their bodies still haven't been found to this day. And then in um, Daniel and Anna Maria's case, they were not found for... I think it was six weeks. Yeah, six weeks. And by the time they were found, there was so much decomposition and the elements and whatnot that certainly concealment bought the offender time and evidence erasure. For sure. And you know, that's not something we see in every murder. The son of Sam, you just walk up, shoot him and leave him. So there's lots of murderers and serial killers who make no effort whatsoever to conceal or to hide the bodies. So that to me, that's something that gives us something about this case. Six, all of these murders appear to have occurred somewhere else than where the bodies were ultimately recovered and or where the cars were recovered. Based on the evidence in Kathy's Civic, I think most investigators have said or agreed that the murder didn't happen inside the car because there wasn't enough blood evidence. There wasn't any signs of that. Robin and David, same thing, right? The truck, there's no blood. There's nothing like that in the truck. None of these vehicles or the places where they found the vehicles seem to be the death scene. Right. You would expect in some of them to be an abundance of blood for mm -hmm. there to be things on the outside of the car, to be on the ground near it. There's none of it there. I agree with you. All these, the location where the bodies were found and the location where the vehicles were found are all dump sites. Yeah. Number seven, there are vehicles involved in every single one of these cases. I think sometimes we can take some of the basic things for granted. The reality is sometimes people are murdered in their house or they're murdered in a hotel or they're murdered on the sidewalk or wherever. In this instance, we have people in vehicles in every case. Number eight, the vehicles were all staged or manipulated in some way. And I think we see this change from case to case. But in every single one of these cases, if there's anything that I think stands out to me as a potential signature for this killer or that could potentially link all four of these, these vehicles are all that's like part of the crime in a way that is potentially unique. Kathy and Becky's, there's this attempt to set it on fire and push it into the river. And then we see it kind of change. We know David, his truck, instead of being backed in, it's pulled in. And I was able to read in accounts that in the last three cases, keys were left in the vehicle. In Kathy and Becky's case, I couldn't find anything that I was confident that said that the keys were still in the vehicle. However, the fact that it was rolled down the hill and all that, I tend to want to assume that the keys were still in the vehicle, but I wasn't able to confirm that. That's number 10 on my list is that keys were left inside the vehicles in all these cases. And so nine, while we're just talking about it, because seven, eight, nine, and 10 all are, revolve around the vehicles. Okay. Nine, the window is down and the door is left ajar or both. In three out of four of these cases, Kathy and Becky's case is the lone outlier, but we've got the glove box open and the wallet is laying on the floor, Kathy's wallet, on the, the driver's side floorboard. And then you've got the fact that there's all that diesel fuel and there's this attempt to set it on fire. So, I mean, obviously that's a difference uh, from the other three, but given the, the just the way that we have that with the the glove box, the wallet, and in the other three, you've got the window cracked or door left ajar, which there's this theory that perhaps this is somebody who's either has some sort of law enforcement background, is a law enforcement officer, or they're pretending to be a law enforcement officer. That That's sort of how they gain this, the upper hand in these situations is to present as an authority figure. And so you have the window getting rolled down and you have their glove boxes open in two of these cases. 
We have wallets that are open and either on the dash or on the floorboard. Okay, somebody's come up and they've pretended to be some kind of law enforcement. Let me see your ID, your driver's license registration. Okay, get out of the car. And that could be a way that this person gained the upper hand. The difference, I would say, with the vehicles, yes, each of these is a dump site for the vehicle. But one thing that's different is that in Kathy and Becky's case, that is the only one where the victims were in or with the vehicle. In all three other cases, the victims were found somewhere different than the vehicle. The only one we don't know about is Keith and Sandy, but even in their case, they're separated from the vehicle. Yeah, 100%. They've never been found. I agree with you. And when I look at that, I think, is that the effect of whoever this is when they tried to now they've got Becky and Kathy in the car, and they try to get rid of the car. And frankly, it just goes so horribly wrong for the killer. You try to light it on fire, and you fail at that. And you try to push it into the river, and you fail at that. Is that sort of a learning curve of, I'm not going to make that mistake again. So now I'm going to do it this way. Certainly could be. Yeah. Number 11, couples or perceived couples. So in every single one of these cases, we have either a couple. I think Kathy and Becky are the they're really the only ones who I think are legitimately actually dating. But then with the rest of them, they could be perceived as couples. I think there's something specific to that. Yeah, I'll give you that. I think of it as a difference in that Kathy and Becky were the only couple and the rest were pairs. Yeah. But if the offender did not know these people, maybe it appeared to them that they were all couples. Or at least fit this image of a couple, maybe. Number 12, all of these were either on a holiday or a weekend, sometimes both. In Kathy and Becky's case, it was on October 9th, which was a Thursday of Columbus Day weekend. We're into the weekend on the second one that was on September 20th, which was a Sunday. Then the third, we've got April 10th, which was a Sunday, the week after Easter. And then the final one were September 5th, which was Monday into Tuesday, but that was on Labor Day like actually on Labor Day. Given that these could have occurred at any point or any time, it, it seems like there's some sort of connection there with this weekend holiday. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a similarity. And the point of this exercise was to look at similarities and differences. Similarities don't necessarily mean a connection, but they could. I think that's why it makes sense to look at what do they have in common, what they don't. We could start very basic and say the similarity is that these people all had two legs, but that probably is not a connection that's yeah. <laughs> relevant to solving this case. That's a good point. But if you go to the extremes, sometimes you're able to find the middle that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Now, 13, I, I had some trouble with how to phrase it, but the way that I see it is these cars were left in jurisdictions with small populations, which police forces who would have jurisdiction who would not necessarily be as equipped to handle a homicide investigation as maybe more populated areas, which in this region, you've got Virginia Beach, which is the biggest city in Virginia, is like less than an hour away. Newport News has a population that well exceeds like 10 times the area where some of these bodies were found or their cars were left. So I have to wonder if it's not intentional that on the Colonial Parkway, who's going to find and initially investigate that? Park rangers. Well, if they've shown us anything in these cases, it's that they have no idea how to handle a murder scene or even a potential crime scene when they should know it's a potential crime scene. Then in David and Robin's case, we're in Isle of Wight County. So this is a small county, small police force. They're basically instantly in over their heads. And we see that, right? In each of these cases, we see that the initial response by the police in investigating is just not 
great at all. Even in David and Anna Maria's, which I said in that episode, out of these, it was the best handled. Even in saying that was the best handled, the bar was really low because the, their bodies were, I think it was just over a mile away from where the car was left. So if a grid search had been done, which now you would, you would absolutely expect that even back then it should have been done, they would have been found within 48 hours. But instead, the police, the way they conducted the search didn't really make a lot of sense. And they quit after a couple days of doing it in a way that was wonky. So their bodies weren't found for six weeks. And by then, you think about how much evidence is lost in the difference between two days and six weeks. That's the difference between solving this case and not solving this case. If these offenses were committed by the same person, it seems to me that could be an intentional thought to leave the cars or leave the bodies in areas where the police departments have limited resources and less are just not used to handling that kind of a crime. That seems like an awful lot of thought, but I suppose that's possible. Part of why I think that, though, is here we are almost 40 years later and this person hasn't been caught. The only thing that really jumps out at me as being conflicting with the idea that this is somebody who's organized and intelligent is that they didn't understand that diesel fuel doesn't light. But I also wonder if you're somebody who's, let's say, highly educated, you're really smart, and maybe you come from a background that's white collar, maybe you don't know anything about diesel fuel. Maybe not, or maybe the point of the diesel fuel was not, I think you said this earlier, maybe it wasn't to light the car off, maybe it was just to wash away evidence or something. Or to even just confuse the investigators. Because lots of things were done here that are confusing, that are still confusing people 36 years later. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of contradiction. So those are my 13 similarities. So what do you have for differences? Um, and you made a chart. Wow, you're fancy. I just had a list. I'm a very visual person. That's fair. Some differences that I have are the locations where the vehicles are found. Even though these are the Colonial Parkway murders, only two of these were on the Colonial Parkway. David and Robin, David's pickup was at a parking area near the James River Bridge. It looks to me, I've never been there, you have, but it looks to me it's like 20 miles south of where Kathy and Becky and Keith and Sandy would be. Yeah, that's accurate. Kathy and Becky, Keith and Sandy, their vehicles were within a mile of each other on the parkway. But David and Robin, like 20 miles south, and then Daniel and Anna Maria, they're in a rest area on I-64. It looks to me as the crow flies, it'd be about 30 miles northwest of where Kathy, Becky, Keith and Sandy's cars were found on the parkway. Yep. As I understand it, it was the media that coined these, the Colonial Parkway murders, not necessarily investigators or the task force that said, oh, these are all related. In fact, they've tried to walk back the idea of a serial killer. Some of that sounds like horse shit in the way they did it. Yeah, that's fair. And I, I think when you hear people, the victims, families, and people who are really close to this case, they'll often say things like the so-called Colonial Parkway murders. Like you just said, only two of them are actually physically connected to the Colonial Parkway. Another difference is the location where the bodies were found. Kathy and Becky were found in the vehicle. David and Robin were in the water. Keith and Sandy, still missing. Daniel and Anna Maria, they were on the ground, covered with a blanket on some private hunt club land. Mm -hmm. The method of death, Kathy and Becky's case, it was ligature strangulation, possibly neck laceration, still some debate on which was the actual cause of death. Then for David and Robin, those were gunshot wounds. We have no idea when it comes to Keith and Sandy because their bodies haven't been found. Mm -hmm. And then with Daniel and Anna Maria, again, we really have no idea other than there's a nick on one of Anna Maria's bones that would be consistent with a knife, but 
certainly can't say that was the cause of death. Now, you could argue that similarly, Kathy had a laceration to a finger that looked like a defensive wound. So you could say maybe that's a similarity, but when you look at all four of these, you have ligature strangulation, possibly a neck laceration as the cause of death, gunshot wounds, then unknown and unknown. Looking at the victims, you talked about how they were couples or perceived couples, and I don't disagree with you on that. My first thought was there's a difference here because in the case of Kathy and Becky, we have a same-sex couple, and in the other three cases, we have a male-female pair, mm -hmm. but not a couple. Yeah. In favor of the similarity to an outsider, perhaps, yes, these did all look similar, but it is odd for a hunter that has a preference that one of them would be a same-sex couple in his eyes, I'm just assuming the offender is a he, and that the other three would be heterosexual couples as far as he's concerned. The only thing I could think about that is Kathy was, by all accounts, athletic, and I don't know how exactly how long her hair was. I think it was long enough that it covered her neck. But also, you know, we're talking about the 80s. I just wonder if from a distance, maybe the person who did this thought that it was a man and a woman. Maybe they didn't realize. Perhaps they assumed. And for all we know, maybe Kathy or Becky was wearing a baseball cap yeah. in the dark. Who would, you know, sure. Maybe that explains some of the overkill. Maybe this person who committed this crime, maybe they're looking for a man and a woman couple and they think that's what they found. And then they realize this is a woman and a woman. And some people have said maybe this is like a moral enforcer, right? Somebody who thinks that's wrong and sees that as they have to correct it, that these two women are doing this. And so maybe that explains some of the overkill in that case that you don't see in some of the others. Again, if these are even connected. But there's a lot of theorizing there. And unfortunately, we just we don't have enough information to, to know. And so we're just spitballing what it could be. Fair enough. Another difference that I noticed was that what their last known location was would be a lot easier to solve if every one of these victims, the last thing they had done was gone through the drive through at Hardee's. And we knew that and they disappeared. Well, then you could narrow it down. The last place that we knew Kathy and Becky were at William and Mary, they had been at that computer lab or library. And it's plausible that they may have gone to the Colonial Parkway as they seem to be the only pair in any of these four that ever went to the parkway, but not at this location. It's pretty obvious that where these vehicles and bodies were dumped was not the murder site, but their last known location was at William & Mary. It's plausible that they may have been going to the parkway. Wouldn't expect them to be in this particular location based on where they did go on the parkway. In the case of David and Robin, what we know is he was leaving home, no idea where he was headed, no idea what Robin's intent was when she left home. There seems to be no evidence that anybody knew that the two were going to be together. Mm -hmm. And because we have no idea why they were even together, we have no idea where their intended destination was. The last place Keith and Sandy were, were at this party. We presume, based on the fact that it was right before Sandy's curfew when they left the party, the timing seems logical that their destination would have been back to Sandy's house. But Keith's car ends up on the parkway, and there's no reason that those two would have been there. Sandy did not like the parkway at all, and Keith's longtime girlfriend said that, that was not a place they went, not a place Keith would go hang out, and Keith was fully aware of the dangers of the parkway. The point in the difference is that they were at a party. And then Daniel and Anna Maria, there was a sighting of them, apparently, at the eastbound rest stop. And, and there's that note that seemed to indicate that they might be meeting somebody at that rest stop so that it 
was planned, that they had planned to stop there. Real good reason to believe they'd be eastbound on 64, and it's reasonable to think they'd have been at the eastbound rest stop. There's absolutely no reason whatsoever for them to be at the westbound rest stop in New Kent County or headed eastbound for any reason, or be in that weird acceleration lane far the away. the trucks, yeah. Yeah, it made no sense. All of their last known locations were different. Hmm. But all of their last known locations, going back to your similarity of the vehicles, would be that they were all traveling by car. I've often thought if these are all done by the same person, if they're all connected, that there probably is something... Some clue that just hasn't been uncovered where all four were at the same location or somewhere really close by. They all stopped at a 7-Eleven or they all stopped at a Hardee's, like you said. They were somewhere that maybe just doesn't come up. I think about if this was the work of one person or one team, maybe there was some stalking involved in this or at least some level of like, okay, this couple or these people have piqued my interest. And so I wonder if there's not some place where all of these couples interacted or where the killer was that he came across them. And obviously that could be a moving target given what we're dealing with here, but it would be great if we had that commonality, that thread that we don't seem to have. And to your point, it lends itself to this notion that maybe that's a difference. That's a significant difference that they're not all in the same general area or location the last time they're seen. Their last known location was different, but the similarity being on the road. And when you said something about stalking, that reminds me of what we talked about earlier with the guy who was looked at as a suspect early on. I don't remember all the details, but he was an unpleasant fella. He had been stalking people on the parkway and he was looking like a really good suspect, but the FBI administered a polygraph. And when he passed the polygraph, they're like, oh, wasn't him, which just blows both of our minds that happened. But that would line up with what you're saying about he's out in a general area, maybe following these people by car or maybe seeing them at this or that convenience store or rest stop, or maybe he's frequenting these places just looking for people. When I say they aren't all on the Colonial Parkway, one's 30 miles this way, one's 20 miles that way, they're not on the opposite ends of the world either. They're within an hour circle. Yeah. So the other difference, when we started looking at these cases one by one, this was starting to look like a real similarity to me, but now I'm wondering about the difference, and you talked about it too, and it's the wallets, and I'm going to point that out as a difference, because mm. in Kathy's case, Kathy's wallet is found open face down in the car. In David and Robin's case, David's wallet is on the dash, and there was some money missing, but then later some fool shows up and says, well, yeah, I took money out of the wallet, but that's all I did. I didn't kill him. Right. And then in the case of Keith and Sandy while it's in the car. Yes. But then Daniel and Anna Maria, Daniel, who we know is traveling with some kind of money, mm -hmm. somewhere between $160 and $900, his wallet's missing. And Anna Maria, they leave her makeup purse, but take the money wallet. Not that she has any money, but there's a checkbook or something. Mm. But like you said, just because Daniel's wallet is missing and the money's missing doesn't mean necessarily that the motive for this was a robbery. It could be similar to, as in the case of Dave and Robin, where someone completely unrelated to the murder could have snatched it. Mm -hmm. So sure, but as it ended up, and there could be a reason for most of the differences that 
that I'm pointing out, but I think they're just worthy of consideration. Yeah. The difference I see is we've got three cases where, okay, the wallets seem to be at play and support the thought of a law enforcement or someone posing as law enforcement. And that would explain why or how one person is able to gain control over two people and all that in the first three cases. But we don't so much see that in the last. Now, I didn't come up with as many differences as you have similarities, but I would not take that to mean, well, there's more alike than there is different. So that wins. It was all the same person until all four of these are solved. We're not going to know. I heard Bill Thomas put it to the effect of he is not convinced that all four of these were conducted by the same person or persons. And I tend to agree with that. There are so many different combinations that could be here. One and three could be the same person, and two and four could be two completely independent people. One, two, and three could all be the same offender, and four could be unrelated. It makes a lot of sense to me that one, and I shouldn't use numbers because these are people, they have names, Kathy and Becky, their case to me is most similar to a case that isn't even considered a Colonial Parkway murder. There are many more similarities there. You're talking about Julie Williams and Lolly Winans? Yes. So that was a double murder in Shenandoah National Park, also in Virginia, probably, what, two and a half, three hours away from the Colonial Parkway, but we're in the same state. We're not that far away. And I think it's notable that this is a lesbian couple. These are athletic women. They seem to be, they're out, they're hiking. They've got a dog with them. Again, these are people who, they're smart, right? They know what they're doing. They're out there. They're in good shape. So these aren't victims that you would see as easy to take over or easy to manipulate or necessarily easy to control. And time-wise, that one occurred. It was May of 96. So it was roughly 10 years after Kathy and Becky's murder. And the FBI has publicly said that there are a lot of substantial similarities between this crime. At least one of the park rangers that was at the Colonial Parkway on one of those cases also ended up being the lead investigator on this Shenandoah case. Yeah, as I understand it, he was actually a person of interest in the Colonial Parkway's case. Even though he's a park ranger, he was a person of interest. And then he was the lead investigator on the Williams and Winans case. And uh, right. And then he ends up in some kind of nonsense in California. So whatever park this guy went to... <laughs> trouble followed, is what it right. seemed like. And my understanding is, in addition to him, there were three other park rangers working the Colonial Park way at that point who were then transferred or moved and were at Shenandoah when that crime occurred. So certainly that's something to take note of. Yeah, absolutely. And we're not saying that anybody that was assigned to this park when this happened and then that park when that happened, well, they have to be guilty. Absolutely not. Yeah, I don't know who did it. If I knew who did it, we wouldn't be talking about it on a podcast. We'd be talking to the FBI right now. Right. I think we have moved right out of the similarities and differences and gotten into the next thing that we wanted to talk about today, which is some of the cast of characters. And we already talked about the park ranger. Yeah, there's some interesting things that seem to follow him. Speaking of interesting things, do you want to tell us about Ron Little? Ron Little. Okay. By all accounts, the FBI didn't have Mr. Little on their radar really at all until he injected himself into this investigation. And he did that by writing a six, seven, eight page, I don't know what you would call it. We'll go with letter. A letter to... It was long, and then he didn't use the return key anywhere. It was no. all one paragraph. Yeah, if you're into grammar, this is going to hurt you to read it. Not a lot of periods either. I think there may be three <laughs> periods in seven pages. 
Yeah, Mr. Little, I believe he was had immigrated from New Zealand. And so he was here, he was doing his thing. And then he writes this letter and he sends it to everybody. Oprah, George Bush, the first George Bush president while he was president. Somewhere between interesting and unhinged is how I would describe <laughs> this. He almost lays this foundation that like maybe he's the guy they should be looking at for the Colonial Parkway murders. Uh, he sort of claims that the FBI is harassing him and the INS is mm -hmm. after him. And that all this stuff that they're doing, it's, you know, it's because of that. And they won't leave him alone. And the FBI, one of the agents comes out and says, the only person who thinks that Little did it is Little. To me, it seems a little bit of a red herring. Some people have jumped on to this guy because he ends up getting deported. And he's deported, I want to say it's in late 89 or 90. And so he's deported and the murder stop. And so there's, okay, he's gone and maybe he did it. And Bill Thomas has pointed out, there's this dude and who they have any reason to believe might be involved. Why on earth would you deport him from the country if he's suspected of these crimes? And there's a bunch of other crimes that he, I think, was charged with and suspected that were completely unrelated, more along the lines of fraud and those kind of crimes, not murders. I had a hard time following because at one point it sounds like he's saying that the government wants him out of the country. And then at another point it reads like the government won't let him leave the country. It was a little bit confusing. The intriguing part is that there were two other people that were connected to his security agency that ended up dead, and their killers are assumed, or I don't know if they've been prosecuted or not, but don't seem to be related to this, but two people connected to him ended up dead separately, and there was some connection to one of the Colonial Parkway murders victims. So Robin Edwards' mother, she worked in the office at this security company. That's how that family is connected to this security company, which kind of ties in with Little. And yeah, you're right. There was a guy, Brian, and then there was a lady murdered. Relatively short distance, short time period. I think both of them may have actually been recovered from the James River, which again, it's right there on the other side, right by the York River. We're down in that area. You're in the same general location. Certainly, if those two had been murdered together and, and a car had been involved, I think there would be like no question that this would have probably gotten tagged in with the Colonial Parkway murders. The wrong little letter is just, to me, it underscores this whole, there's so much out there about, that they can be brought into these cases that it, as people like us who don't have the benefit of seeing and knowing what the FBI knows or what the Virginia State Police know about these cases, those details, and to be able to fish through and figure out what's wheat and what's chaff. To me, the Ron Little thing seems more like Chaff because he just seems unhinged. I don't really know what the purpose of that was. <laughs> he does seem like a whack job. Is he just paranoid, maybe? I, who knows? Yeah, I don't know either. But again, you got to look at everything because here we are, as we've said, pushing on 40 years out, and they still don't have a, even a named suspect in any of these cases. Ron Little claims that he was assisting with some investigations or conducting investigations on his own in at least regarding one of his employees. I wonder how his involvement might have caused some problems or confusion or issues with the real investigation that was going on. I tend to think personally that Ron Little is just, he's a couple crayons short of a 16-pack, and he sends this letter. Well, law enforcement can't just ignore it. They've got to look into it. If he really is just kind of cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, then they're working on figuring this out. It's wasting time and resources. 
they're not giving enough resources to it as it is. Sure, but I wonder even if this guy was out doing his own investigation. Oh, you're saying if he bungled it for him somehow. Sure, even oh, yeah. even in an innocent way, if he questions a potential witness or whatever, mm. in their mind, they provided that information. So when the real investigator comes along, they might have it checked off, not realizing this guy's off doing his own thing. Yeah. So that could be a thing. Now, if you want to talk about people that injected themselves into this case. I know where you're going. We promised we'd talk about characters, and here's the character of the case. This guy, his name is Fred Atwell. He was a criminal before he was hired as a deputy. We should also point out Mr. Atwell has since deceased, so he's no longer with us. So, R.I.P. Fred. <laughs> Not really, though. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything nice about this guy. All right, that's fair. So he's a criminal. He gets hired as a... Hey, a, criminals are people, too. Absolutely. I believe in second chances, and I believe that maybe you make a mistake and it doesn't make you a bad person, but I also don't think that investigating crimes and being in a position of public trust, such as a deputy, is where you need to be post-felony conviction. However, I guess the sheriff at that time in that location felt differently. As Fred Atwell's police career is winding down and he's retiring and moving off into the sunset, he starts to take an interest in the Colonial Parkway murders. And then he does a couple of really strange things. He somehow discovers that crime scene photos from the Colonial Parkway murders, that they have left the security of the FBI and have somehow fallen into the hands of a training contractor who's using them to conduct investigation training. And what does Mr. Atwell do? He puts them on a CD and gives them to the media. I think he calls himself a whistleblower for pointing out the FBI's lapse in maintaining that evidence. Now, I'll play a little bit of devil's advocate. Some of what I've read has indicated that he contacted the FBI to make them aware of this. And they were basically like, yeah, whatever. So then he goes to a reporter and is like, here's this stuff I told the FBI. And they're like, pound sand. And when the reporter contacts the FBI, then the FBI is like, oh, wait, no, you can't. That's a problem. Don't get me wrong. I think Atwell is definitely a character and I don't know what to make of a lot of the stuff. There's more to the Fred story. So yeah. I'll, I'll let you no, and keep I, on I, keeping on. I appreciate what you're saying and clarifying those points. I'm with you. I'm not yeah. about to go leak all that to the media. I might right. tell them I have it and say, hey, can you do a story that these exist? I'll let you see them, but I'm not going to give them to you. And Maybe that pushes the FBI's hand, but yeah, to but, just... But old Freddy was obviously a media hog. Hey, yeah, you're he, not wrong. I don't He liked the spotlight. He got it. Yeah, he got it. Anyway, so Atwell, after he discovers these crime scene photos and ends up providing them to the media, then he goes on to do something that earns him the bag of shit title, in my mind. He purports to the family is that... He will lead this fundraiser, and the money used from that fundraiser will finance things like posters and maybe rewards and public service announcements and things to bring publicity to the case and hopefully find a resolution. Sounds like a good thing. And so he's got the family out selling raffle tickets, and the winner of the raffle will get this new car that's been donated by a car dealership. But in the end, there was no car. The dealership confirmed that they had never agreed to donate. Was there a raffle? Did they raffle it? Yeah, what was it? His son-in-law or stepson won the raffle. Wait, who picked the winning uh, ticket? Uh, Fred did. That's convenient. The raffle was to benefit Fred Atwell and not anyone else. And to me, that is just the despicable thing to do to take advantage of these families. Yeah. And I think I read too that there was something like $270 or something that he had sought from the families up front to cover some costs of something. And he later on admitted he literally just pocketed that money. So our 
boy Atwell gets himself into some more trouble after that fiasco, ends himself up in prison, and that is where he died not too long ago. My recollection is that Bill Thomas has said that he thinks that it's at least possible that Atwell had more information and that he had pretty much really sought Atwell to tell him whatever he might know about the case. You know, it doesn't have to be that he's nefariously involved as much as he's just maybe got some information. He's a hustler and a con man, obviously. The impression I got from Bill Thomas was that you had to take Atwell's stories with a grain of salt, but there was potential that there was good information in there that could still be very helpful. The impression I got, again, from Bill Thomas was that he just wished he could get the straight scoop out of Atwell. But it seems like Atwell's the kind of character that wanted to always hold back a little bit to get you to come back to either get more attention or more money out of you, whatever the case was. I think that's spot on. A hundred percent. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but in early 2010, Atwell had actually contacted Bill Thomas and he said that he was working on behalf of some foreign interest. And it's so unbelievable. It's almost hard to say. So this alleged foreign interest claimed to know where Keith Cole and Cassandra Haley's bodies were buried. And for just the low price of $20,000, Fred would broker some sort of an arrangement with the mysterious foreign interest to get the remains recovered. And then supposedly he gave Bill Thomas a map of a general area of where the bodies supposedly were. I mean, come on. It's just, that's obvious. He's just a con man. So people have speculated, well, he's injected himself into this case again, like the guy who sets the fire and then volunteers the fire department to come back and help put it out. Maybe it's that kind of a situation. He was in law enforcement. He's also a criminal. And his felonies, my understanding, those were burglary or robbery. I think it was burglary. Um, They were theft-related crimes, Mm -hmm. which to me goes in line with the con man thing. So some people think he looks like a pretty good suspect, but... Like you said, to me, he seems much more the con man type. My vibe on Atwell is that he's an opportunistic parasite. Yeah, that's fair. Not necessarily a a serial killer. Yeah, I don't see that. And frankly, he couldn't even pull off this raffle fraud thing. He didn't even do a good job at that. (laughs) So I I just struggle to think that guy who can't even, and shame on him, you're right, is awful. To scam people is bad. To scam people who have been through what these families have been through is just, it's, it's an abomination. So yeah, he couldn't even do that. He's a turd. So some theories on this case, we've talked about some of the characters, we've talked similarities, differences, and sort of just thinking through, okay, what do you do with all that? I have spent a ton of time researching, reading, listening, watching, and, you know, I'm one of these people, even if I read a headline about a court case, I want to see the actual evidence. I want to see the documents before I make up my mind. So in this case, it's really difficult for me without having the benefit of actual evidence that the FBI has, or if there had been a trial to be able to look at what was introduced in court and to look at it that way. Without the benefit of that, it's hard for me to kind of say, well, this is where I land. We're all human. And so we try to take our heads and go somewhere. I tend to agree with Bill. I think that it's more likely than not, or at least it's a real possibility. However, he says it, and he says it much better than I just did, that at least one or more of these cases are not related. I feel like if there's one that's not related, it is Daniel and Anna Maria, just because there are some significant differences in my mind in that case. However, I would not be surprised if all four of these cases were committed by the same person or a duo. I tend to think it's an individual, personally, and this is all just armchair detective stuff. I tend to think it's one person. I think that's why we see 
shoes are generally removed. I think we see a lot of controlling behaviors. And I think this is somebody who's fairly intelligent and probably somebody who in some way, shape or form is able to confidently exert control over these victims. So they have used either a gun or a gun in a uniform, or they're using tools to come across in a way that really is frightening and catching these folks off guard and putting them in a position where they feel they need to comply with this person. I wouldn't rule out the possibility that there were two people, but I've heard some say that, well, there has to be two people. I don't think that for a minute I think it's entirely possible for one person to control two people. And I agree with you on being related. I wouldn't be shocked if all four of these turned out to be the same offender, but I certainly wouldn't be shocked if there was actually two separate offenders that committed one or more of these crimes independently, or even three. It wouldn't be out of the question. Mm. Sometimes the similarities are just similarities. To me, it's statistically improbable that these would be four different killers. That would surprise me very much, but I would not be surprised if there were two or three different killers. I could be wrong, but my guess is that one or more of these cases, the offender is already pretty high on the suspect list. And with the processing of some of the evidence that's sitting, at least one of these cases could be cleared and it may be sufficient that it would tie up two or three of them. I'm glad you brought that up. Just to be clear, there is evidence in all of these cases. As I've read it, there's DNA evidence in at least three out of four of these cases that could be or has been or is being tested. I'm pretty sure it was Becky and Kathy's case. I think they pulled, it was over 150 fingerprints off of the inside of Kathy's car. So especially in Kathy Thomas and Becky Dowski's case, there's no shortage of evidence. She had hair in her hand, right? I think it was in her hand or... She did have hair in between her fingers And when I had asked you about that, when we did that case, I don't think you were sure whether there was or wasn't roots attached. Could they do DNA? Yeah, I don't think I had a, I didn't know. I have since found that there was DNA on that hair. And I believe Bill Thomas said it has been tested, but the results have not been shared with him. I think I want to say it was around 2008, 2009, somewhere in there. The FBI sent rape kits for Kathy Thomas and Becky Dowski to a police department by accident and then said, yeah, just destroy it. No big deal. They were supposed to be sending some other rape kits or some other evidence from this other case. They inadvertently sent the rape kits from Kathy and Becky's case. And the police department that received them contacted the FBI and said, hey, you sent us this evidence. How do we get this back to you? And the FBI said, we don't want it. Just burn it. So this police department apparently was like, no, you sent us these rape kits. We want to send these back to you. They're evidence. We don't think it should just be thrown away. And the FBI said, basically, are you not listening? No. And so they were incinerated. So Kathy Thomas's and Becky Dowski's rape kits existed, even though there was no speculation that there had been any sexual assault. It's insane to me that evidence was destroyed. And then that made its way out to the families. And obviously they were clearly, understandably, very upset. That's horrible. So, yeah, Bill Thomas, the more I've listened to him, he's quite charitable, frankly, to law enforcement in the way that he describes their handling of the case. I was going to say graceful because the harshest word I think I've ever heard him use is frustrated. Yeah. When I think he's entitled to be furious. He is dogged and, man, the weight of living like that has to be a lot to bear. And the frustration, like just listening to what he's had to deal with, frankly, there's no reason that this case isn't a higher priority than it is. I just can't help but wonder sometimes, knowing the background of some of these people being like on the cutting edge of technology or the military or the business, just some of the different things 
things that these people were really into. What role would have they played in how the world has changed today? Yeah, for sure. I read a, an article that was talking about Kathy and they posited how, and it's so, I mean, it's hard to read, right? They say, you know, if she had been a heterosexual man, would this have happened? And that's taking the point that maybe that crime against Kathy and Becky, you know, maybe they were targeted because they were a lesbian couple. And, and that's certainly possible. So then from that perspective, had she been a heterosexual man at that time, she might be running for president right now. Well, sure. And Chances are she'd still be in the Navy. Oh, well, yes, she did five years and got out because she was harassed because it was illegal at that time to be gay. And so she just had enough. And I think she was probably scared, I would imagine. It seems scary to me to be investigated and to be harassed by law enforcement because you're engaged in illegal activity, according to them. Yeah, she would have probably had an incredible military career, might have went into politics. She left the military and got into uh, stock trading, which I can't imagine that's an easy transition. But uh, she was very successful. Right. All accounts, she was killing it. So it's you're exactly right. I can't imagine. And Keith, he's all about the technology and computers. And just at that point in time, for somebody to be that up on it and to be that invested in it, it's along those lines of the guys like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, who just saw things differently than most people did. So you wonder what right. kind of contributions that they would have made that were taken away by somebody who was just a selfish, awful person and needs to be caught. That's the bottom line. Needs to be caught. Eight families are part of a club that they never wanted to join and no one wants to be a part of. The common bond among these families is grief, heartache, loss, questions, frustration, and lives forever altered. For those of us interested in true crime, the victims are part of four double homicides that occurred in the same general area in less than three years. For the folks who knew and loved them, each one of these people was a son or daughter, brother or sister, aunt or uncle, and a living, breathing person with hopes and dreams for what should have been the long lives that lay ahead of them. Instead of celebrating marriages, the birth of children and grandchildren, spending time together over the holidays and summer cookouts, the surviving families are left to wonder what might have been and cherish the fond memories that remain from the short lives that ended far too soon. There won't be any new memories, except maybe those of the years spent searching for answers, because after more than three decades, the mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, nieces and nephews, and all the other family and friends that love these people dearly still don't know who took the lives of these young people, much less why. To try and appreciate how long these families have been searching for answers, consider the fact that Kathy, Becky, David, Robin, Keith, Sandy, Daniel, and Anna Maria were murdered before we had the internet and before cell phones, much less smartphones, were a thing. Wars have been fought. DNA profiling was discovered. Two new generations have blessed this earth. We started using computers to type and print, and now the computers can write for us. All of these things happened after these eight people were murdered, and all the while, before and after each one of these milestones, their families anguished to know who killed them and why. If you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, I, I'm not a cop, I'm not an investigator, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a forensic expert, what can I do? Well, there's something you can do. Use the power of the internet or the old-fashioned letter and envelope and you can write somebody and tell them they need to get working on this case. If enough people contact their representatives, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Just reminding those that we have elected that set the priorities that this should be a priority. 36 years later, it should have been a priority 
many years ago. Mm -hmm. You can send an email, you can send a letter, you can make a phone call. You don't have to have information to just keep this case pressing, to keep it relevant. If somebody with enough political capital decides that this case needs to be solved, this case is going to get solved. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode. Be careful. They're actually outside right now. First of all, I'm too fat to catch you. <laughs>